next episode of the work item and we have a special guest today uh who's our guest courtney uh sarah chips who is amazing uh she works at stack overflow and i'll let her do the rest of her introduction that's great yeah so i'm the director of community at stack overflow um i also run a company called jewelbots uh, along with a whole mess of other things um yeah that's fantastic so what's it what's it like to run community at stack overflow it's a huge site i've been using stack overflow for i don't even know how many years i think i was in middle school something like that wild well yeah what's it like it's really interesting it's like um so i've been uh i've been using stack overflow since the very beginning of the beta product and watching it over the past 10 years and the closest thing I can describe my job too is kind of like a cruise ship director where like um, with so we have 50 million um, uniques a month right and so there's so many people that are part of this part of the community and when you think about guiding a community and addressing the needs of a community that large you can only take baby steps um, and you have to focus on what's directly in front of you as well as serving um, all different types of folks in the community. So it's uh, it's very it's the work is very thoughtful and slow and rewarding because there's just so many people. That's awesome. And so for uh, you know you're talking about the work being slow and there are so many people. Um, how do you generally approach making decisions around you know community focused efforts? Because the one thing that I know about Stack Overflow, there's a site called Meta, right, where there's a lot of uh, very interesting discussions happening. How do you handle kind of the different inputs from community, different inputs from the product team, from you know design team? How does it work? Yeah, uh, the answer to that is just talking to a lot of people. We have a lot of different ways that we get feedback from our users. Uh, everything from user interviews to um, anonymous surveys to uh, places like Meta and um, directly from our moderators. So there's a lot of different voices that you uh, are exposed to or different uh, with different motivations, right? Like the, the person who's spending 40 hours a week uh, editing questions to make sure that they are high quality, has very different needs, have very different needs and motivations. So it's all very, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of different personas that you need to think about as part of that. And we talk to as many people as we can. So I know from my time at working at Stack Overflow, um, understanding the meta community was like a huge, I mean, it was a huge driver for feature development, right? So like many, many um, years ago, you know, we primarily go to the meta community with like, hey, uh, we're, we're thinking about working on this feature and uh, here's how we want it to work. Here's how, uh, you know, we want your feedback. And how have you seen that in your time there kind of shift? Like, I, I think the narrative has shifted a little bit and there's been an emphasis on trying to get a broader understanding of the audience, not just like the meta users, because again, it's like less, it's like the top of the pyramid is to, in terms of user base, right? For Stack Overflow and, and potential users, right? Um, I think the product is even changing now, right? In, in, that, in that domain. So how do you, how are you um, actively kind of going out and finding new places and people to talk to? Yeah, that's been a really interesting evolution. I think the meta community definitely, so we've done a lot of research into those numbers and they definitely are a good representation of our most engaged users. Uh, for example, 25% of our most engaged users go to meta a month and so to see what people are talking about and um, even a smaller portion of those folks participate um, and so what we've realized is they do represent a, a big portion of the community but uh, not everyone right there's a lot of different folks um, and a lot of people that just don't even know what meta is that go to stack overflow um, and so what we've done is we take Meta as one of our inputs. We also do something called the Site Satisfaction Survey, where we uh, where we uh, interview or get feedback from um, a significant number of both anonymous and logged in users on Stack Overflow, um, and we've identified 
um, probably the top 10 themes of different, the people say that we could be doing better. So uh, kind of monthly, it allows us to do a temperature check on certain initiatives, if they're uh, moving the needle with this community, if they're helpful, if they're not helpful, if people are hearing about them, all those things. Um, so that's been really interesting. And we weigh that feedback, we, we weigh that against the meta feedback, against the feedback we get from our moderators and different things like that to end up making product um, decisions. So how in the world did you get to this place <laughs> that you are today, right? Um, I, I love to dig into the history and talk about uh, what made you go one go. I know that you were originally like, you know, focused on software development and um, focused on JavaScript development and like, where, where did the passion come from and how did you get started in that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely didn't anticipate ending up here. Um, I think that the reason why uh, getting involved in the community was so appealing to me is um, the amount of time I've spent in the software community, um, whether it be online through different communities, in person, through open source, conferences, that kind of thing. Um, talking to user, I, I mean, everyone in the software community is user of Stack Overflow. That's not, I mean, like you may not log in, but you're using Stack Overflow. Um, there's 23 million developers in the world and we get 50 million uniques a month. So either um, people are coming from multiple computers or there's, uh, there's even a user base that don't do software development at all. They're just using it for, you know, HTML, CSS on their Wix site and things like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So um, the uh, getting involved in the Stack Overflow community was really appealing to me because of it being the largest community of developers and being able to help um, support developers in the future and developers that are active developers now is really appealing. So I was software developer, been a software developer for um, 20 years now, which is wild. Um, and seeing the software community evolve over the past 20 years has been really amazing experience. And so um, being able to uh, be an active part of that has been really cool. So Sarah, I know that you are um, really active in the community and one of your initial efforts was uh, founding Girl Develop It. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's been a really big part of my career in general. If there was a driving force, I could say um, one thing that being part of the software development community, it's um, uh, I've often been the only person like me in the room or on the team. Um, and so very early on, I realized that being a technology builder and not just a technology consumer is a really powerful thing um, and a really awesome thing. And so my goal has always been to get more women at the table. And so Girl Develop It started when um, a friend of mine and I were talking about how in our computer science classes, we're often really uh, hesitant or nervous to ask a question because um, being the only person like you in the room, no matter who you are, it can be when you're the only person it can be very uh, uncomfortable because you feel like maybe you represent all the people like you and this is a dumb question. Should I know this? Are people going to hear me say this? And they're going to be like, oh, of course, you don't know that. It makes that kind you of feel thing. very vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. And so we talked about how neat it would be if there was a space where people could go and just ask all the stupid questions they wanted, you know, like no judgment. Um, we're here to we're here to help. So, you know, we put together a curriculum for an HTML CSS class and um, we figured we didn't really think a lot of people would be into it. This is before the days of the uh, boot camps that we have now, like Flatiron School and um, places like that. And um, our class had sold out in less than a day and we were like crazy. So we taught it and it was really neat. And a lot of women came and asked a lot of questions and learned. Um, and then we did it again and again people started asking for different classes and curriculum and people in other cities asked if they could start their own chapters, um, uh, which was very cool. After a while, um, it just kind of grew organically. Um, and then we became more purposeful. So Girl Develop It 
It's been around for 10 years now and uh, has taught over 100,000 women here in the U.S. how to code, um, wow. which has been really cool. Um, now a lot of goal developer classes are transitioning to online classes because of COVID, uh, but that's been really neat too, um, watching that open up. So, um, you know, I stepped down, from, stepped away from goal develop it uh, almost six years ago, but seeing it flourish and keep going and being um, being able to be involved on an advisory level is very cool. Do you see any change in, you know, you mentioned due to COVID, a lot of the classes moved online. Uh, do you see that the classes now can reach more communities or more individuals that previously were, did not have access or could not travel? Yeah, that's been the really neat part, I think, talking to the people that are scheduling classes that you don't have, because uh, previously it classes gravitated towards the major cities or even like more urban areas. And now um, having them online, it's attracting people from all over the place, which is very cool. Um, and I think that opens it up even to a larger audience, which is neat. I think it's wonderful to have it accessible. You know, I live in a rural area and I, I live in an area, it's actually really hard to get any um, girls to do any STEM classes. Like it's, it makes me sad, like to know that, you know, I have two daughters going through the education system and there's a potential there that they wouldn't get interested in it because they're kind of pushed or, or it doesn't look like you, sh you want to go do those classes because it's all boys, right? Like, and so I would just kind of love to pick your brain and hear about how do we empower young girls to understand that this is not like a boys club, right? Like, how do we continue to, to share that message? Cause I don't think it's, I don't think it's really even still now, like talked about a lot um, at that, at that level, at that age, when you're, you know, a 13, 14 year old girl, like you're very, probably very impressionable. And there's like all these interests that you can go explore. Um, how do we make it exciting and like become something that they say, you know what, I want to do that. Yeah. I think that's been really interesting to see. I've talked to a lot of, I've talked to a lot of, um, uh, girls this age and done a lot of research around this. I think a lot of it, uh, you know, there's lots of different theories. A lot of people have thoughts. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I think that what I see is uh, happens in media and happens um, in how we socialize girls, right? Like you think of shows like The Big Bang Theory and we all laugh, right? Like it's a bunch of nerdy guys and they're into science and, you know, uh, in the later seasons, I think they got a lot of feedback about, hey, like girls like science too, but, you know, really largely the drive of the show is, you know, uh, there's a girl, she's normal, she's social, of course she doesn't like science. And of course, the, if you like science, you're really nerdy and unattractive. Um, and so as a country and as a society, we push girls to be, to care a lot about their physical appearance. Um, and we teach them that phys being physically attractive is the opposite of being smart. So we tell them, you know, you, you, we, the things we surround them with kind of push them away from that. And one thing we've really tried to do with Jewelbots um, is associate the things that are more feminine with the things that are technical, right? Because when you look at what we call gender neutral STEM toys, we call them gender neutral, but really they're fairly masculine, right? It's like playing with wood or making robots and things like that. Not that girls don't like making robots because they do, um, but they also have their own interests and those are very technical as well. Um, we did a whole series about cosmetic chemistry, right? And how the, the people that make your nail polish and the people that make your cosmetics are uh, chemists and they go to school for this and they learn a lot of um, a lot of things about how to make these things well. And that stuff's really interesting to young girls. Like knowing, instead of just being consumers of these products, being able to design and make these products um, is also their desire. And so what we try to do is just approach things from a way of, you know, people think that girly and science are opposites, right? Like you think of something that is yeah. girly and you think of it as like a soft thing or something that's more social and things like that. But really the things that we think of are more girly and the things that appeal to girls, there's also very technical. We just don't talk about that level. So being able to approach it, that kind of stuff with them, I think um, is something I'm excited about. So making the connection between something that is they're interested in and is in their world and exposing the technicalities behind that uh, is a good way to bridge that gap. So like you yeah. said, don't build like, you know, of course, like wood is not necessarily like, I mean, it's crazy to think that wood is like masculine, but like, you know, you want to build something with that wood, you know, it's, it's used as a 
piece to construct something, whether that's a flower box or a bench, right? Or a sword, a toy store. I don't know. But yeah, yeah I like that idea that, or that, that kind of thread of connecting the two. Find, yeah. it in their, find it in their world and work backwards from there. Yeah. And also something that we do is when girls build, we call it crafting. When boys build, we call it building. Um, but really, it's the same thing. It's taking parts and making things that are cool that you could use, right? So, like, uh, like kind of blurring those lines, I think, is, like, crafting is making, building is making. You know, it's all, like, taking pieces and using your imagination and being creative and that kind of thing. So, like, crafting and technology and science, those things are all very related. So helping them, you know, connect those dots, I think, is mm -hmm. really helpful. What's been one of your favorite projects that, or favorite stories that's come out of Jewelbots uh, for you personally, like that gets you excited and you would love to tell people about? I was just talking about this today. My favorite thing in the world is, what, is when people send videos, like people will send videos of their daughters or their nieces or their grandchildren, um, like making stuff and coding and just talking about it. And they're so amped. I mean, there's nothing better than like a 10 year old girl showing off the thing that she's coded and she's excited about. Like the coolest things I've seen um, are uh, different code that um, uh, the way they think about things in such a different way that adults don't think about, right? Like, that's my favorite thing is just giving them all the components and seeing what they do with it. Because as adults, our imaginations are like really uh, limited because of, you know, you just, it gets dulled over time. And they think of such cool things. Um, like I was just looking at this video from a few years ago where this girl uh, took these light up LEDs and um, may, put it all around her skirt and made this really cool light up skirt that she like spun around in and all the lights went everywhere and it was so neat to see and she was so amped you know like she was so excited to see this thing that she loved and to like be able to build and control it um, but those are all the best parts and it's funny like no matter what seeing the video of someone young being excited about something they made that's always life changing so how do you, you know, scale out something like Jewelbots? Because how, how do you take it from an idea to something that a lot of people just start using and start adapting? Yeah, so Jewelbots has like taken a lot of changes over the years or evolved a lot over the years. We started out as a hardware company. A lot of people, you know, come to me to say, how do I build a hardware company? And I say, don't do it. Just quit now, give up your dream, but not really. But <laughs> hardware is like, uh, it's such a wild world. I think uh, it's a difficult thing to do. And so when we hit some um, difficulties with our supply chain and hardware in about, 20, at, about two years ago, uh, what happened was um, we received a round of manufacturing that had like a 20% defect, which was really tough. Usually we had under 3%. And so we had already sent a lot of them out. So you know, customers were coming back to us and saying, this thing is broken that you sent us. And we were like, oh no, oh my goodness. Uh, and our manufacturer um, wouldn't take responsibility. It already left their, uh, already left their warehouses and it was in our, in our warehouses. It was really, it's a really tough thing, especially when you're dealing with overseas manufacturing and different laws in different places. And so that was a really tough place for us to be because hardware is very capital intensive so, so would you do we take a lot of money and put more money into this product or do we take a step back so we took it we talked to a lot of parents and what we heard from them was um one thing that we had realized about the product it has a lot of seasonality um so we would sell a lot around uh back to school we'd sell around christmas and that kind of thing and talking to parents what we'd hear from them is this is a high this is an expensive toy um, and so we buy this for birthdays, we buy this for Christmas, but we really wanted something cheaper. And also, you know, with toys, kids often play with them for a month or two or a couple weeks, and then they go in a box, and then parents have this, like, box of plastic. I was about to say, like, that's much longer than my daughters play with something. It's yeah. about, <laughs> you know, two hours, and then they're done with it, unless it's a Legos, but... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So that's so a lot of money. That's a lot of capital. That's a lot of energy being spent on a piece of hardware or a toy that is going to be stuck in a closet somewhere. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's what we were hearing from parents. And so we had, we took a step back and 
um, started uh, working on a lower price point product that was more of an experience than anything where, you know, like it was okay to learn and walk away from it and had a lower price point of, you know, anywhere from 20 to $40. Um, and so we started making jewel bit science kits and that's been really fun. We've um, been working on, uh, kits that teach all kinds of things from coding to chemistry to uh, everything in between. And um, that's been really neat. And so uh, the way that scales is, you know, through marketing, through finding the right parents to talk to and having parents talk to each other. And also one thing that um, there's a lot of groups that look for things like this too, because, you know, there's curriculum, there's Girl Scout groups, there's classrooms, there's hackathons. And so that's really fun to work with as well. And so in the context of the work with different communities, different kind of customers, if you will, um, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback and I'm sure you have to kind of, you know, how do you choose, okay, th this needs, we need to address this versus this needs to just like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it later. How do you prioritize all that? Because I'm guessing you get a lot of feedback. It's a popular product. That's a great question. So we do get a lot of feedback. Um, and the thing that I look for, and I think the thing that is really helpful is frequency. So understanding, um, like when you hear something, noting it, writing it down, when you hear it twice, when you start to hear it three times, when you start to hear the th same things, um, that's when, that's what causes me pause. You know, there's, you have to think of your sample size, you have to think of the people that you're trying to talk to. And also though, one thing I've learned with this is kids' feedback is the most valuable because as adults, we like, watch for each other's feelings. We're really considerate of like how, um, you know, this is this person's business, is their livelihood, like that kind of thing. And kids do not care. They are honest and they will just tell you if something is dumb <laughs> and they hate it. And, or if there's something is cool, there's like no filter, which is great. It'd be great if you get that kind of feedback from adults, but I think that's hard. So um, feedback from kids gets like 10 point, like I, you know, 10 times more value. That's an important point for our listeners. Give feedback as if you were a child. <laughs> yeah, that would be really great. Yeah, stop trying to like um, uh, second guess yourself. Yeah, it's really be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, or that's something boring, or that's like, I, I hate that. Or they'll be like, oh my gosh, that's so great. And when they're like, oh my gosh, that's when you know you're like on the right path. I like the idea of just reviewing designs with kids and you show it to an adult and they're like, oh, this is great, but I'm not exactly sure if this quite hits the point. The kid is like, I hate it. <laughs> this sucks. I, I feel like I, the, Sarah, I, I feel like I've had that experience when I worked at Stack Overflow. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, I feel like I posted something once and it wasn't literally like, that sucks. Take it back. So <laughs> I don't know that there's that problem everywhere. But. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> That's what I've learned too uh, with like large communities. It's like, um, that's one thing that's different about Stack Overflow that, than if you think about a product like Joelbots, because when you're dealing with so many people, like half a percent of people will get out there and be like, this is awful, this is stupid, this is, you know, like, uh, but there's 40% of the people or, you know, like a significant percent that aren't talking at all, right? And so like being able to, um, that's a lot. I think that's a tougher problem because there's some people that are very loud or they'll be like, this is great, or this is very bad and that kind of thing. And then there are other people that just communicate by not using your product or by not participating or just, you know, not um, engaging. And because they don't have time, they're not interested, they don't like this thing, so they're not gonna be involved. So like that I think is, is a tougher problem too. And you have dividing signal from noise when like there's not enough noise, like there's not enough, like, when the signals that you're getting are from the loudest users, it's tough finding those other people. Yeah, when, like when the majority of your community just passively uses your product, they don't have time or think to even give you feedback, right? Like it's a given that you will always, I, I always talked about Stack Overflow as like, I work for basically a gravity force on the internet. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like some people just are like, I, of course I go to Stack Overflow for an answer. I typed it into Google and I landed there and then there's no like, relationship between, oh, maybe I should give the site some feedback. I didn't like that particular interaction. So, but whatever, I found what I was looking for and I'll do it again 13 times a day, I'm sure. Um, yeah. 
I bet you know, it's how like, do you interrupt like, them? Yeah. Like, how do you stop them in the flow? You don't. We don't really. Or, you know, we didn't before. Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of like how I'm sure we experience Wikipedia sometimes. Well, I mean, I think even like uh, most technologists too are aware of how Wikipedia works. Like, we know there's some folks in there that are arguing about what to what should end up on that page, but like. I don't know about y'all, but I just use it as like a natural resource of the internet. Oh, hundred percent. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. But I'm sure like, I know that actually I've talked to some of the folks that manage their community and they face a lot of the same things of, you know, there are certain people that are very loud and we do need to listen to those people because they are um, a really important part of this ecosystem. There are the people that are, um, like managing the content and making sure that people like us, the things that we see are fact and not, you know, some random things. So they're in charge of a lot of the quality and responsible for that. But also there's something to the people that use the resource, making sure they're getting value as well. So it's like a, it's an interesting, uh, I'm sure there's lots of books about this. Right, and you bring up kind of a very good point around the danger that a lot of product teams can uh, not detect early when you have that vocal minority that are super passionate about the product. They just, you know, I want feature X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, this is not what I want to use. It's very easy to say, oh, great, we get this feedback. This means we have to build feature X, Y, and Z because people are asking for it. But then you have the vast majority that it would totally destroy their experience if you would have went and implemented those features. So finding that balance is, it's hard for any product team. And I feel like, you're, yeah, you're bringing up a very good point for, especially for products at scale, like Stack Overflow, Wikipedia, um, it, you know, how do you balance out the fact that a lot of the people will never give you feedback? You will never hear from them. They came and went. Like I know for a fact that you know you brought out the Wikipedia example. I actually never check, you know, the history or the discussions, the talk tab. It's just it just doesn't cross my mind. <laughs> I came for the information. Yeah, you just kind of got to trust that it's right. Yeah, it's really fascinating um, uh, and interesting, and also a real challenge. And Courtney, I'm sure you remember this. A real challenge is knowing what metrics to watch for because there's so many different metrics. Like there's page views, there's number of questions, number of answers, comments. Like there's, uh, and even in that, like there's, um, you know, profiles and job postings and all the things. And a feature change that you make, um, making sure that you're watching everything that it could affect. Because if you're not watching the right things, then all of a sudden, you know, this is an extreme example, but you make a change on a question asking page, you get half the questions in a month. Um, if you're not watching that closely or even like your quality of question going down and that that's all stuff that we have to watch for. So uh, it's a really sensitive ecosystem. I heard, uh, I listened to a podcast recently talking about this like idea of when you're building communities, there's like almost this aspect of you need like a, you need like a, game systems designer somebody like overseeing all the systems and making sure that they're balanced and like i'm not talking balance from a fairness perspective i'm talking about from a social perspective of like you implement something like uh, such as a like or a upvote and then people will inherently try to figure out how to game said system or use it and manipulate it in various ways that like maybe you never intended it to be done or used in um and the same thing with like fe releasing features of any type um like understanding like the cascading effects of something very what you think is a very small feature and how that can actually have unintended consequences um one that comes to mind to me is also like instagram i think for a while they had a they had a tab where you could like watch the activity of other people and they found that actually it was used to like stalk people right like there's like it's like you would not think that um that this would be a problem feature it would be just a handy way to keep track of things that your friends are doing but you know, they had to remove that. And I think it's really important to be thinking about how the systems all work together. Um, and it sounds like kind of your role would be a little bit of that, right? Like keeping watch over the community and making sure you have a pulse on it. And like, are we releasing something that is not going to go well um, and could be abused or could be, um, you know, just, just like a subpar experience even. I think it doesn't have to be inherent misuse. It could just be like it, it lowers our quality standard, right? of our site. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it's one of the reasons why diversity is so important, you know, because when you look at products like Twitter and Facebook and the, the problems they face now, they were built and designed digitally 
initially by people that didn't need to think about being harassed online or being stalked online. Like it's not that they never did, and I'm sure some of them do, but some of them, you know, thought of it, but it wasn't like the system was designed around an archetype that was a majority. Um, and the concept of introducing minorities to the platform and what the effect that would be on their lives or what the possible consequences were was like an afterthought. So now even 10 years later, thinking about harassment and stalking and things like that, it's something that is more prescient. And if you were to go back to the beginning and say, how would we design this knowing what we know now? How would we do this differently? Um, it's not possible. So I think um, the more examples I see of this, the more I think uh, the more I get driven to really push for diversity on these teams because uh, it becomes, people start, you can identify those problems a lot earlier. Right, and this is something that we, we've discussed in uh, one of the previous episodes with Charmaine, uh, who also kind of brought up the same point where when you build products, having a diverse product team, diverse team of people that test the, what you're building is key to kind of detect those issues early. Because when you have a homogenous team, uh, like you mentioned, 100%, they will not encounter those issues because for somebody that you know never went through a coordinated harassment campaign, they would never know. It's like, I, I don't know, th this sounds fine. Yeah, no. But somebody that went through it, they'll know, no, 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 hold on. Like you cannot open up everyone to message me with no controls, with no filter, with nothing like that. Uh, or you know, locking down their accounts and making sure that they they control who can see what. All these things are they require having diverse teams. And I think you know that diversity is also diversity in experience because I think you could have multiple women on a team and they're all going to have you have different experience life experiences that they will fall back on. You know, I I, I recently also saw somebody on uh, Twitter like they totally changed their profile and they set it up to be a woman for like a day just to see what would happen. And it was like, it like shook them to their core, right? Like they just immediately saw like the level of like harassment. They, they were like, this never happens when I am X person, right? Male, white male in the tech industry. But then like, as soon as they switch around and they start like posting as like this person that was just trying to learn, you know, they get bombarded by, you know, <laughs> people like just looking to, to harass or start a fight. And I think that that's terrible. Um, and it's absolutely cr critical that like we have people like you in the position you're in to not only talk to like a select audience, right? Don't just solicit feedback or solicit feedback from the people who are at the top of the pyramid in a, in a system, right? Um, because those people may be also like repressing potential abuse and supporting it. And I'm not saying that that's happening, but it, it could be, um, it could be very well, like a, a top down thing that's being controlled. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, like tech. Uh, to me has always uh, come off as like in the past as like a boys club and how do you start breaking that down um how does that how does that start to go away across the board i don't have the answer but you know i, I think it's great that like stack overflow is moving that direction uh trying to better that relationship yeah yeah i don't think anyone has the answer yeah um but i think that uh I think a lot of people are working on it, which is good. Um, and I agree that diversity of thought is super important and people from different backgrounds because there's so many different, um, so many different experiences that you need to think about when you're building product um, and things that just aren't intuitive. Um, and so that's really, I think that's always a really neat thing to realize um, uh, how things can affect different people. What is one of your like guiding principles in the role that you're taking on now? You know, trying to get yourself in the mental aspect of you're responsible for a lot of people. Um, and you care. I know you, I know you care about people, right. And you want them to have a good experience with whatever you're involved in. And so what's your mantra to your work, your approach? Yeah. Well, I think with Stack Overflow in particular, the one skill I've learned is patience. I'm a, I like describe a self-described table flipper. You know, when I see something wrong, it's really tough for me to uh, not immediately change it 
Um, and so I think one thing I've learned in this role is uh, the skill or I continue to learn being able to bring people along for the ride. One thing that's been really big is uh, learning that um, when you tell people, first that they ask, am I part of the problem? And if, and if they feel that they're not, it becomes a very defensive thing. But instead saying, here's an issue that we're seeing, you know, uh, here's how we're thinking about it, but we'd love to have your thoughts. It becomes very different. It becomes a collaborative exercise. Um, and so I think my first, my initial response was people need to know that other people are not having a great experience. And the initial reaction people have is, well, I didn't do it. You know, like I, I'm nice to people. I'm not, you know, I'm not mean to them. I'm not bullying them. Um, and instead being able to say, hey, here's what we're seeing. We think there are some bullies out there. And then when people look at it that way, they're like, oh, yeah, I've seen that. You know, here's a way you can maybe make that better. But I'll, like, keep an eye out because that's, you know, no one wants that environment. No one wants to be part of something that is negative. So, uh, yeah, the next question that I have is actually something that we haven't covered yet. Uh, your career. How did you get started? You know, you've been doing this for so long and you have some fantastic experiences. You went with Jewel Bots and Stack Overflow and girl develop it. How did it all start? What brought you in? Yeah, um, I make the joke a lot it's, um, that I um, was part of a generation of people that became coders because they didn't have friends. Um, <laughs> um, that was, uh, I'll make my own friends. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, uh, I think a lot of us discovered community online, different communities. I discovered it through BBSs um, back uh, in the day, but I think um, computers were a real um, bonding uh, or really, it really opened up my world a lot. And I took a C++ class in high school and ended up really loving it. Um, and being like, oh, wow, I think like this. This is how I think. Like, I think in if-else. Like, this is really well, very cool. I think in loops. Um, and so um, I'm very lucky to, at a age, what I want to do with my life. Um, and so um, I studied computer science in college, and then I went to a boot camp, and um, uh, I started in the world of data warehousing which now we call data science, and um, moved over to C-sharp and ASP.NET um, and then JavaScript. And then I found out that I really loved engineering management. I thought that being an engineering manager was quitting um, as a coder, um, but found out that I really like helping coders be able to focus on the things they really enjoy um, and helping um, build products that way. So um, it's been a really neat evolution. Um, and even the industry itself has changed a lot, which has been really neat. Um, now I know a lot of um, other uh, coders uh, in the industry, other female coders. And um, it's been uh, really neat to see a lot of their careers evolve too. I think that Din and I both get asked this question by people like in our network, like, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts too. Like, how can I start my career? And that answer differs between if you started 20 years ago or 10 years ago or now, right? Like yeah. 20 years ago, the difference is so different and 10 years ago even, because some of the stuff that, you know, how I learned to do front end stuff, like doesn't really apply anymore. It's like, well, now you can find it in a, you can take a boot camp class. Yeah. Like somebody has it all packaged up for you, ready to go, basically. But there's still, there's a, there's so many options out there. It's almost overwhelming because I can tell yeah. somebody, like, go do this, 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 this. And they're like, well, where do I start? Right? Yeah. Anywhere. What? <laughs> what do you mean anywhere? <laughs> Online, in person. Yeah, it's so wild. And you can start when you're, like, in your 30s or 40s or 50s. You know, mm -hmm. like, you don't have to do it when you're 18. It's really, it's really neat. The, the beauty uh, of the internet making it super accessible to pretty much anyone. I mean, I like I can go look at YouTube video, and I love the transition that you mentioned that you know data warehousing. Now we call it data science of how many things that existed forever 
they got rebranded over and over again. You know, it was like back in the day, it was like, oh, I learned statistics. And I was like, no, 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 I built AI. It's like, it's the same. It's what? statistics. It's statistics. I, I'm a web designer. No, I'm a product designer. Yeah. You're just a web exactly. designer. One thing I was, one of the ones I've, I've become that jaded person. One of the ones I was laughing about recently is GraphQL, right? Because GraphQL is like, okay, so we used to have relational databases and then we made NoSQL. And then someone was like, this thing's a mess. Someone needs to make all these different concepts relate to each other in a way that we can understand. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like an XKCD comic about, you know, it's like there's 34 standards. Like, oh, no, I should create one standard that unifies. Like, there's now 35 competing standards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. It's so great. how, you know, for somebody that wants to follow a path similar to yours, where they go from engineering to engineering management, what's the recommendation? What are the things they should pay attention to or kind of get started on early on? Yeah. The thing I've noticed that's common about all of these roles, like, and all of these transitions, like career transitions for folks, um, is, and whether you graduate from computer science or from a boot camp, and this is something I tell everyone because I've seen both. I talk to a lot of new coders. So when you're enter entering the world as a coder, something I always give, the advice I always give people is to give yourself six months. So, like, that might be getting a, a, like a side gig. If like, you know, some people have the family that can help them for six months while they're looking for a job, some people don't. Um, and so that might be doing something on the side or um, that might mean, you know, saving for a while so you have that time. But I generally see it takes anywhere from 90 days to six months to get your first role. Um, you know, of being really dedicated, of applying all the time, of getting a lot of no's, of getting some yeses, you know, just keep following that path and being persistent. And, you know, you might have to do things, like I said, get a, a different job and, you know, apply in the evenings or, you know, whatever that takes. Um, and so that, I think that's kind of universal, though. I had the same experience when I left the boot camp that I went to. It took me about four months. Um, and I talked to a lot of boot camp grads, and, and I'm hearing the same thing. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think being a developer in general, I think uh, the biggest piece, the most helpful thing, I think that's a, surprisingly a very senior developer trait um, that junior developers are very uncomfortable with is saying, I don't know what that is. Can you tell me what that is? Um, you know, because there's so many acronyms, there's so many new technologies coming out. And as a, when you're early in your career, you kind of feel like, oh, I should know, you know, like, oh, I don't want to ask what this is. I want this person's a really good developer and I don't want them to think I don't know. Um, and then the longer you've been doing it, like now when someone says something, I'm like, what is, what is that? What are you talking about? Well as a you know you're a manager now and i think this goes back to leadership like you have to you have to model that skill for your team right so you probably have to admit that and and say i don't know everything and then you have to make it clear when you onboard people into your team it's okay to not know and we are vulnerable here like we we help each other it's not a i am smarter than you and you know i'm going to one up you type of atmosphere like you never want it to be combative uh, yeah. so how do you do that how do you practice that yeah, well, I think the first thing is exactly what you're saying by modeling that. But then another part of it is calling out that behavior when you see it. Um, I think it's really important, and privately, unless you know it's someone that's been doing it. If someone's, uh, yeah, privately, just to say, like, if you notice someone saying, oh, you don't know that, or like, why don't you do this? Or this is how you should do that. Instead of saying, mm -hmm. hey, have you thought about it this way? You know, this is something I've seen that works before. Or, have you heard of this thing? I'd love to tell you about it. You know, like, here's this technology I learned. Or, you know, one time I saw this done this way. What would you think about that approach? Um, you know, like approaching things in a, uh, uh, a way that encourages learning rather that is not judgmental, I think is really important. So when you see people on your team, you know, say those words, pulling them aside and saying, hey, you know, like I noticed you saying it this way. Um, something that you may not know is that that can feel, um, if you're a newer coder, that can feel like very accusatory or very judgmental. And something I found work really well is, you know, asking someone if they've seen this before or instead of jumping into an ex, like a lot of 
coders uh, will jump right into an explanation. You know, when they see you do something a certain way, they'll say, let me teach you about this technology I know, instead of saying, hey, have you ever seen this before? Um, so then you have to like sit there through like this big explanation or not, this is tea. Uh, and, uh, and instead of um, approaching it in uh, an educational and giving a learning atmosphere. Yeah, and I think this is something that you hit on very astutely is the fact that it requires candid feedback. I think that a lot of people are really bad at kind of delivering that candid feedback of saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Or like, here's like, don't don't say it this way. Think of it this, this other way. Because a lot of times it's very easy to brush it off and say like, oh, well, you know, they said somebody, oh, you don't know that? Like, whatever. It's probably you don't have the experience. Instead of, you know, calling it out, people just brush it off and ignore it and move on. And that person will never know the fact that, you know, the developer they just told that to is feeling really bad about what he just heard or she just heard. And it's something that requires that culture of candid feedback in the organization. And uh, to, to that extent, I actually have a question. How do you foster that in the team that you're working on and the company that you're working on, kind of that ability to provide candid feedback and not take it as an offense and saying, if I told you about something that did not sit well with other uh, team members, how do you how do you manage that? Yeah, I think that's a really hard one. I think when uh, I'm not sure I have an answer for that besides just practicing what you preach. I think uh, radical candor is a really good concept um, where you know you're doing people a favor. You're not doing them any favors by um, not giving them feedback. Um, it's a book by oh, I think her name is Kim. Oh, yes, Kim Scott. Yes. Uh, yes. And I really love that concept. And she talks about how the opposite of that is ruinous empathy, right? Like, I, I love the <laughs> idea. Yeah. Ruinous empathy. Yeah. Where it's like, I really feel bad. I don't want to make this person feel bad. So I'm not going to say this to them, even though this would help their careers or even though this would make them better at work. Um, I don't want to make them sad. Um, but also, like, being able to deliver that feedback in a way that is actionable, you know, like in the moment, making sure to have examples and making sure to tell people how their behavior is affecting others. I think that's something you have to practice for a really long time. I don't think it comes naturally. I'm sure there's people it comes naturally too, but I think for most, it's pretty hard. Makes sense. And so the last question that I have this part of the interview before we ask how people can find you online is, how did you make the transition from developer to management? Because I feel like that's uh, there's a lot of misconceptions around that where a lot of people think that, you know, going into management is a promotion. Going into management means now you're kind of the next level. Uh, what was that for you? Like, how did you decide that management is a track uh, that you want to pursue? And what were some of the kind of learnings that helped you get there and realize that, oh, now I have to approach things differently? Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I I think that for me, it was funny. It was something I literally was forced into. Um, I was working with a startup and uh, they were looking for a technical leader and they asked me to do it. And I said, absolutely not. You know, that's quitting. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to be a coder my whole life. Um, and so they were like, okay, can you help us find someone? And I was like, yeah, I'll go in interviews. So I went on all the nice dinners with them while they were trying to find a technical leader. And we finally found someone that they liked and they were going to give him an offer. And that's when I realized, actually, I really do love these people I'm working with. And so the only way to stay working with them is to become a technical leader. So I'm going to try it. So I told them I'll do it, you know, kind of begrudgingly. Um, and then it was just an amazing experience. I found out that I loved it. Like I really loved one thing I learned that, you know, um, one thing I learned, one of my, my superpower is finding folks that have been underestimated. I really, I found that that was so rewarding. Um, finding folks that weren't being given an opportunity for who knows what reason um, and being able to identify. I, I've, I say it's a superpower because I've been doing this for 10 years and it is, Every time I've been able to do that, it has been an incredible reward. And 
now the people that I was hiring for my team 10 years ago, they're helping me with my career, right? Like they're providing me opportunity because, you know, now they're lapping me because they're just so awesome, which is so cool. Um, and so for me, I just kind of fell into it. I think uh, I also see the folks that have, um, think of it as an advancement. And I, I think organizations are starting to learn how to create roles for developers that don't want to become managers. So I hope we continue to see that because it's not always, people don't always love it. Right. Yeah, no, 100% management is not for for everyone uh, because I'm guessing the proportion of coding does go down compared to say like what you've done before. Oh yeah, I never code at work, um, which is, yeah. Is that, um, something, yeah. is that something that uh, you're trying to kind of, well, I, I, I realize that maybe saying like make up for is a kind of a bad way to position it because you're not truly making up or losing anything. You're just doing a different specialty. But uh, are you trying to kind of uh, still stay on top of the technological uh, changes that are happening, the different frameworks, approaches, methodologies, all that stuff? I just had an, a debate for two hours yesterday with... Uh, individual contributors and engineering managers about whether engineering managers should ever be involved in technical decisions. Um, it was a heated debate and no one won. But I think, yes, I think I work hard to try to keep up on all these things because I think it is really important to stay relevant. And even in your code base going in there and even though you're not going to contribute to, uh, like the worst thing an, an engineering manager can do is get in the way of the team by saying, I'm going to build this feature, right? Because there's always things that are more important for you to be doing and you end up, you know, uh, becoming a liability. You're the things you're doing. You're either ignoring your team by focusing on coding or hurting your team by um, not getting the feature done. But just like being in the code and being able to do little things like fix bugs and things like that, I think is a great way to stay current. So I try to do that as much as possible. That's fantastic. Well, uh, I have so many more questions, but we're at time. So we'll probably have to have you on another episode. Uh, awesome. But to that, where can people find you online? If they want to learn more about the work that you do, they want to connect, what's the best way? Yeah, um, I'm Sarah Joe on GitHub. Um, you can check out Jewelbots at jewelbots.com. And I'm Sarah J. Chips on Twitter as well. Excellent. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming over and chatting with us. Uh, I learned a lot. I don't know about you, Courtney, but I personally learned a lot. Thanks for having me. This has been really neat. Thanks so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank Great you. Just